How am I doing? Am I doing okay? I'm president. Hey, I'm president. Can you believe it, right? I don't know. It's, I thought you needed a little bit more, more time, they always told me, more time, but we didn't. But we have an amazing group of people standing behind me. They work so hard. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check. And that was President Donald Trump marveling over Republicans' achievement of getting their health care bill through the House. It has been a frantic week in Washington. It seemed like Republicans' health bill was dead, then it was alive, and now it is on its way to the Senate. And I'll sit down with two of my colleagues who've tracked this incredibly closely, Adam Kenkren, a providers reporter, and Jen Habercorn, our Congress reporter. And then after the break, we'll be joined by Mario Molina, who is head of Molina Healthcare, a health insurance company that did very well on the Obamacare exchanges. And now Mario Molina is no longer with them. We will talk with him about that decision and how he sees the road ahead. But first, a reminder, if you like Pulse Check, please subscribe, please share, especially right now when the healthcare debate is so central. You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Overcast. We are definitely on TuneIn. Just search for Politico or Pulse Check, and you can sign up and subscribe there. And with that, let's get to Jen and Adam. We'll talk about the healthcare debate and where it's going next. So I am now joined by two of my colleagues, Adam Kankren, our provider's reporter. Good to be here. And Jen Habercorn, the best reporter covering healthcare issues on the Hill. Wow. Thank you, Dan. (laughs) It's true. It's true. So we we are a little exhausted after a very long week. It's it's Friday morning here in the Politico office. But the culmination of the essentially two-month sprint in the House to get health care through, it really seemed down to the last day or two that this might not happen. And it feels like, Adam and Jen, there, there were two big turning points, one being the amendment about two weeks ago hammered out between Representative Tom MacArthur, the moderate co-chairman of the Tuesday group, and Mark Meadows, who you reported on, Adam. You went down to North Carolina. Absolutely. The conservative leader of the Freedom Caucus, who worked for weeks to get his his group in line, they came to a deal. We'll talk a little bit about that. That jump-started the, the dormant talks. And then a few days ago, Fred Upton, with a last-minute amendment related to pre-existing conditions, seemed to push wayward moderates over the hump. So my question to the two of you, when you think about the turning point, the crucial moment that got this bill through the House, what would it be? Well, I think there has to be two. I mean, if Meadows and MacArthur hadn't come up with that amendment, and if the Freedom Caucus, more importantly, hadn't decided, like, we need to get on board, you know, we would still be talking about the failed bill of six weeks ago. So that was definitely... The, the impetus to, to reignite this. I mean, leadership at that point was kind of saying, you know, you guys hammer this out on your own. And if you get a deal, sure. But then the second one was really this Upton Amendment, which was very weird in my eyes, because it was only $8 billion. Um, Upton just kind of came out of nowhere and was like, I hate this bill. And, um, you know, we all were like, oh, my gosh, if they don't have the former Energy and Commerce chairman, this is dead. And then, you know, 12 hours later, he has an amendment that fixes it and everyone's on board. It was very, it was very strange. I think the Upton Amendment content changed very little, but like motivation wise and like cover that this wasn't just a Freedom Caucus win, I think really had an impact there. The, the fact that it was Fred Upton, you alluded to this, Jen, the chairman of a committee who had authored multiple bills to repeal the ACA, and we talked about this in the office, his staff on that committee transferred over yeah. to the new head, Greg Walden, who was a major author of the, of the New American Health Care Act. So it's not like Upton's DNA wasn't in this bill. And it, it also raises the question, how seriously was he opposed? Do you agree, Adam? Was it, was it the MacArthur and before everything else, and then Upton kind of secondly, was there another turning point that we might be missing? I, I mean, I think there was, I think if there is one other turning point, uh, it was, you know, after the first, you know, try at this was was abandoned after Ryan ended up pulling the bill, there was kind of a, at least an early sense from both the White House, from both leadership, uh, that, you know what, we're going to move on to tax reform, maybe we can come mm-hmm. back, even if you talk to the rank and file. They said, look, we still have, you know, four years to get something done in healthcare. We don't have to do it immediately. 
that obviously changed um, when you know Donald Trump came back and said, I want to do this and I want to do this now, and it's very important. So um, once he kind of came out and started saying that and started saying it very forcefully publicly, uh, that seems like it kind of uh, motivated you know, Congress to kind of get back together and say, how can we start to push this thing forward? That's where you end up getting to. It's sort of like that defeat played with their heads a bit. It did. (laughs) Motivated them again to like give this another good try. And but it also added the pressure like they couldn't fail again. It it did. The the White House played kind of two, you know, played kind of a positive and negative role. The, the, The deadline setting in the moment was not helpful, I don't think, because. No, all the reporting bears out that the House leadership was getting increasingly annoyed with the White House's mm-hmm. artificial yes. deadlines to the point that at, at the end, the White House was explicitly told, like, back off. We will set the deadline that we think makes most sense. Yes. And, but the, I guess the, the pressure, the, the constant calls, the constant asking where is the health care bill, um, you know, maybe prevented Republicans in Congress from just saying, throwing their hands up, saying this is a hard problem to solve. Let's move on and get a few other legislative wins before we come back to this. So, Adam, you went down right after the collapse in late March, blamed largely on the Freedom Caucus not coming on board. You went down to North Carolina, chased Mark Meadows around. I don't believe you ever got him on the record. But what was the sentiment at the time toward Mark Meadows? And how much has that changed over the past number of weeks? Well, at the time, it wasn't viewed as uh, as a loss for for Mark Meadows. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It was it was a win for him because uh, number one, he had stood his ground, he had stayed with his principles, um, and, and number two, you had the, the Freedom Caucus coming out and saying, you know, this bill isn't what we promised. This bill is Obamacare light, uh, and that resonated back home um, with a, a, in a district that is deeply red. Um, that Mark Meadows is secure in and that he won handily uh, his last re-election. Um, and, and I think that was partly reflected in the kind of stubbornness of the Freedom Caucus not to move uh, very much, if any, from from their original position. It's interesting. Meadows went from being a pariah nationally, in some sense, Trump putting a lot of pressure on him, mm-hmm. to now one of the most powerful people in the House Republican conference over the span of a number of weeks. Yeah, and I think for the Freedom Caucus, I mean, outside of healthcare, they needed like if they folded here, they would have folded for the rest of the year. They would have had no power. Now they proved you need us. Like if you don't have us, your legislative agenda is screwed. And I think when we think about tax reform, that's going to be a big part of it. Um, I think that ire that a lot of Republicans had for Meadows has now moved to MacArthur, um, at least among the moderates, for bringing this back, for kind of negotiating in their name. and it's going to be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. So I, I want to follow up on that. Tom MacArthur, this moderate Republican mm-hmm. from New Jersey, and I don't think this got enough credit at the end of the day, but he was very hesitant on the Republican push. He was one of the Republicans who got caught on the, the hidden audio tape from the Republican retreat in late January mm-hmm. saying, we're moving too fast. We're going to hurt Americans. I, I believe he voted against the budget resolution too. Uh, one of nine Republicans who who said at the beginning in January, we need to slow down. And yet at the end of the day, he's one of the 11 Republicans at the White House delivering a podium speech. So in some ways, the Republican conference overall has affection for him. It's within the Tuesday group, within this moderate group, yeah. where they're saying we might take away your co-chairmanship. Right. Jen, I, I don't – you understand this better. You've tracked this. I don't understand. So many moderates ended up voting for this bill – and if the overall leadership likes Tom MacArthur, why would he be in trouble? He got them there. Well, a lot of moderates feel like they're in trouble now that they voted for this, or they're in trouble that they didn't vote for it, but they're going to be attached to it. Um, a lot of moderates, even the ones that voted for it, are like a little squeamish about this bill. And a lot of them remember in 2010, the Democrat, the moderate Democrats, they are extinct now, essentially. Um, either they voted for it or they didn't vote for it and they still got attacked for it. So the moderates are not entirely comfortable with this. Um, but historically, kind of the, um, the saying is that moderates cave. Like Mark Meadows and the Freedom Caucus doesn't cave, but the moderates do. And um, that proved to be true here. Um, they lost 20 votes. But, you know, as we were talking on Monday, a lot of us thought this was going to fail, myself included. Actually, I was like very adamant that this was going to fail. I will admit that. Um, but I thought um, I thought that some of those moderates were not going to flip because they saw how bad it was. I, I want to give you credit, though, Jen, because you consistently, maybe on this podcast, definitely when we've talked around the office, 
your thought always was that at the end of the day, if there is going to be a vote, Republicans are going to have to take that vote because of all the, <laughs> all the rhetoric over all the years. And that echoed in my head as I was there listening to the echoes from the, from the House floor and the cheering and the singing and, and just the extraordinary moment that was. Was this a triumph for Republicans? And I ask that because not only would they say it, it was, most reporting has focused on all of the downsides of this bill. And when you think back to when the Affordable Care Act passed, that was portrayed much more as a miracle. I, I think there mm-hmm. were headlines in the Post and the Times, America coverage expansion. It's finally happened after years and years. Are we not being fair to Republicans who got this achievement through after years and years of trying to do it? Well, I think um, starting out, I think um, Republicans promised that they would do this. There was one mandate from the congressional elections in the last four years, and it was this. So, you know, there was one time when we thought this was going to be done by January 20th. And it's now, what, May 4th, and it got done. I like that you're looking at your watch for, for oh, days. Oh, I have the date. It's like a watch. sundial that tracks every <laughs> every day at once. Each, each of the dials is a thing on the Affordable Care Act. You really should just have had like a yeah, tracker. That That is a market opportunity for a healthcare innovator. What is the survival rate of the Affordable Care Act, <laughs> like in percentage terms? Well, if you're going to talk about that, I mean, this is the most dire moment for the ACA. I mean, it survived Supreme Court the presidential election with Mitt Romney, and it was just voted to be repealed in the House. With That's, a Republican president who wants nothing more than to sign a bill, regardless of what's in the bill, just yeah. as long as he can say that he repealed Obamacare. And to your point about whether this is a victory, I mean, we don't know whether this is a policy victory. Um, you know, if premiums go down, you know, Republicans can run on that, and they can say that we, we, we repealed this law that was driving premiums up. We drove them down. Um, and, and the challenge with that challenge with that is historically premiums never go down. Right. They didn't go down before the Affordable Care Act. They didn't go down after because that's just the trend of health care cost. And now Republicans own that even more. Yeah, yeah. They own it completely now. Um, whether it's a political victory, I think we'll find out in November of 2018. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in the moment, it seems like, uh, you know, a political victory, although maybe not as much of one as, as you would have, you know, thought from hearing Trump and from hearing kind of the victory lap yesterday. Um, again, like Jen said, this is something that they've been promising to do for, for seven years at least. Um, it, is, it proves that the House can, you know, despite the stops and starts, get a major legislative package through. Mm-hmm. Um, it proves that they can work together and that, and that, you know, they can give something at the end of the day uh, to Donald Trump to say, you know, look, this is what we've produced four months of work. Um, you know, now you can kind of, we can hand it off to the Senate and, and let them deal with it. But again, longer term, uh, both politically and policy-wise, they've made a lot of promises that it's not clear it'll follow through. And, and they've also made a lot of enemies in the industry. And Adam, you've reported on this. I've I've reported and tracked this too. It is unbelievable Mm -hmm. the number of advocacy organizations that have lined up against this bill, not just hospitals and doctors and patient groups, but even some insurers who are, while a little shaky, have come out and said, we're not fans of what this legislation is doing. And it really breaks all the rules of health reform as Mm -hmm. we understood them. The bill is polling poorly. It doesn't have industry on its side. And it it doesn't even seem to have Republicans who understand the policy provisions when you push them on it. Adam, when you are looking at the response in industry, is there anyone who actually backs this bill? No, not really. Uh, the, the, the the opposition is near universal. Uh, and you'll kind of hear it a little bit more emphatically in some areas than others. Uh, on the provider side, among doctors, um, they are very against this bill. Uh, insurers are, have some other things to worry about. They want to make sure that they can, you know, they can remain in the market the next year under Obamacare. Um, but even so, they have concerns about kind of what the market will look like and how stable it will be. Um, what you hear is, is I think, a, a combination of two things. One, uh, frustration, uh, because during this whole process, there was very little engagement with outside groups. There was very little uh, outreach to providers to uh, doctors and to insurers and saying, essentially, you're the experts in your industry. What do you think we should be putting in this bill? Uh, so it's hard to win over industry if you're not willing to listen to them in the first place. Well, and, and I've done some reporting here, having gone out and talked to industry groups who for years had been communicating before the Affordable Care Act, 
Democrats had brought them together. Ron Pollack, the now retired head of Families USA, a key deal maker who, just as the three of us are sitting around a table, well, four, counting, counting Bridget, the producer, but just as they would have these roundtable conversations with pharma, with insurers, with whoever, that teed up Democrats in 2009 to hit the ground running. Republicans didn't do any of that. And when I reached out to kind of their version of the Ron Pollocks, they said, well, we don't really need to do it now. We'll do it after the bill passes because we will get industry lined up and deal with the implementation of the law. And maybe they were right because they got it through the House. But based on everything that we were understanding, that is not how you do health reform because then industry will work to kill it. So my, my question, did industry not really want to kill this at the end of the day or were there attacks on it just ineffective? Well, maybe a little bit of both. Um, you know, first, there one of the kind of frustrating things is that if there's nobody willing to listen to in D.C., there's nobody really to to lobby and 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 to arm twist. Um, and that's kind of the frustration that I've heard just the past couple of days. I've I've kind of asked provider groups and providers and said, uh, you know, what are you doing to try to to kind of you know oppose this bill to 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 get people mobilized against it? And they've said we've essentially given up trying to work with. Republicans in the House. We've given up trying to have any influence on it in D.C. Uh, what we're telling our members, or what we're telling our hospitals back home is, you're the biggest employer in a lot of these districts, uh, especially in the rural ones. You have a lot of hospitals that are at risk uh, if this bill were to, to become law. Uh, so it's become kind of a, a grassroots strategy, something that's, that's mirrored uh, a lot of the advocacy efforts you've seen in, in order to try and save Obamacare. Um, so you have this kind of groundswell of providers calling lawmakers in their districts and hoping that that will have a little bit more effect. And, and one interesting thing about the rural strategy is that in the Senate, the rural voices have so much more yeah. say proportionally than in the House where yeah. there might not be as many rural members proportionally where there's population based. I also feel like industry kind of sat on their hands. I mean, I know they feel like they can't talk to Republicans, but you know, we didn't see the extent of television ads, you know, that we saw during ACA. I just felt like they were kind of sitting back and didn't really take it seriously that the House was going to do this. I think a lot of them figured the House can do this. The House will do it, of course. The real action is going to be in the Senate. That's why I think next week's going to be so interesting because we're going to see the industry groups take this more seriously now, really start lobbying the Senate. Um, I think, I think for all the you know, consternation of the last four months, it's only going to be more intense now that it's in the Senate. I, I think I'm inclined to agree with you on on the lack of industry firepower here, Jen. I mean, the real scorched earth capability that they have yeah. with their giant war chest, pharma, which doesn't really play in this in this space right now, but thinking about their like multi-million dollar ad campaign that they mm -hmm. just launched. If, if, industry wanted to kill the bill, they would have done more than just write strongly worded letters. Yeah. And perhaps we will see those ads in, in coming weeks, or perhaps not, because this industry also wants to be on the same page with the new administration. And getting off to a rough start might not be what they want for the next four or potentially eight years. You could also break it down by industry. I mean, you can argue that insurers would be better off under this repeal bill. Hospitals would definitely not. Like, I mean, Adam, you know this better than anyone, like hospitals would really get the short end of the stick here. And if they want to rise up, whether it's at the state level or at the federal level, um, I mean, maybe they're assuming that if they lobby their states hard enough, the governors won't do these waivers if the waivers survive and they'll be relatively safe. Yeah, I, I think I think going back to one of your earlier points, it certainly was a misreading early on of, of the environment. It, it kind of reminds me of, of the run up to the election in which you had uh, almost the entire industry, but especially on the hospital and doctor side, preparing for Hillary Clinton to be mm -hmm. president, preparing uh, their pitches, preparing you know everything, all their priorities and what they wanted to do to improve the Affordable Care Act. And when Donald Trump was elected, uh, I think there was just kind of a, a sense of what do we do now? There was not really a plan. Um, and that kind of rolled over into uh, this battle here in which industry believed that they would have a seat at the table uh, and weren't really prepared when they found out that, that they didn't. I, I have one other thought on that, which is just the amount of uncertainty that has now plagued the healthcare industry. And our reporting mm -hmm. has gotten to this with insurance companies saying, maybe we're going to participate in the ACA or maybe not, maybe we'll pull out. To hospitals, and I've talked to a number of executives who have said, 
we're doing multiple scenario planning because we don't know what the world's going to look like. It makes me wonder how much attention has been distracted because they've got all of these new variables in this very uncertain landscape versus a very certain path to get these things done. I want to get to the Senate in a moment, but one last question because we skipped over the Upton Amendment a bit. So very good reporting in, in Politico on Friday morning about how Trump was bending the ear of Upton, first yelling at him and then kind of bringing, bringing him together uh, in a more positive way, I suppose. But it, it seems like Fred Upton, for all of his healthcare expertise, didn't seem to even know if this last minute amendment would help patients, help the, the sick pre-existing patients with uh, pre-existing conditions. What are we to make of that? Mm, I, I really think the Upton Amendment was more about political cover and momentum than the content, which I don't mean to sound too cynical when I say that, but um, they were in this box that the Freedom Caucus had just taken away the pre-existing condition protections. Um, at least they had taken away the community rating provision that a lot of folks say will deeply hurt people with pre-existing conditions. So Republicans felt like they needed some momentum, and this was an opportunity to say, we are doing something right now to address pre-existing conditions. Everyone can be rest assured that it's fine. And here is a powerful voice. I mean, up to before he was chairman, actually, he almost lost the chairman's race because he was deemed too moderate. And so maybe Upton was going back to like his moderate roots there and um, uh, trying to bring some credibility to other moderates. You know, MacArthur kind of lost his moderate cred in this. Upton has it. So maybe maybe that was all part I, of it. I, I heard some total conspiracy theories that Upton's objections were totally strategic to give yes. the moderates cover to bring them on board at the end of the day. There's There's some evidence to back that up. I mean, it was Monday that he came out did a radio interview. He knew that everyone was going to say, oh, my God, if you lost Upton, you lost this bill. And then all of a sudden, his amendment was ready to go. And um, and signed on by a bunch of uh, co-sponsors from California who actually didn't really have much to gain from the Upton amendment. The the, the politics and, and the cynicism, Jen, I, I think that is a warranted approach to this. When you think about the past couple of months in the House, the rush to do votes ahead of CBO scores, the lack of understanding, and even open acknowledgement now that some members didn't read the bill. That amazing Chris Collins moment yeah. on CNN on Thursday night where he says to Wolf Blitzer, um, I, I have to be honest, I didn't read it. And many members didn't either. And he you know, said our staffs did. But when he's confronted then by something like the basic health plan in New York being cut back and saying to the interviewer, wait a second, tell me more about that. It just it, it strikes me as a very unserious process for a very serious piece of legislation that's going to affect lots and lots of people. Thinking about now the Senate, how differently is that process going to go? Will it be, Jen, a replay of this rush to do things and get ahead of CBO scores? Or should we have more hope of a traditional way of approaching health care reform? I think it's going to be more drawn out. Um, I mean, the Senate typically just takes its sweet time with these kind of things, and I think that's going to play out here. I spoke to Lamar Alexander yesterday. He's going to be one of the big players as chairman of the Health Committee, and he said, you know, we like that the Senate got this done, but we are going to write our own bill. We'll take the best ideas that the House had and incorporate them. So he's, he, he's slowing this down very much. He might even hold hearings. Um, <laughs> Shocker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, of course. And, and, and I should just jump in. One reason why hearings matter, it's a chance to air from if, if you are a member of the industry or an advocate, it's a chance to air your concerns or thoughts about legislation in public. And it's also a chance for the senators to hear directly from these people. You are trapped across a room from folks and listening to them, physically listening to them for hours. And that helps define the way that they think about things. Mm-hmm. Um. It, it, well, so I think I think in the Senate we're going to see a longer process. Um, McConnell has put together a working group um, with folks between Ted Cruz and Rob Portman, hoping to get a broad swath of the conference, uh, broad point of views, broad um, difference in what kind of states these folks come from. And there's some hope that they can come up with something that brings everybody together. And I think that would be important because the hardest part, if they can get something through the Senate, I think it would be even harder to get it back through the House because anything is going to be more moderate than the House bill. But if they have the buy-in of someone like Ted Cruz, that would weigh a lot with the Freedom Caucus 
if this bill were to ever get back and, to the House. And that's what I, I talked briefly with Mark Meadows yesterday, and I, I asked him about that that very scenario in which it goes over to the Senate uh, and it becomes more moderate, something that you know mm-hmm. the Freedom Caucus in the House would never have supported. Uh, and, and what he told me was that, number one, he's been talking with senators and he feels comfortable with the direction it's going to go. Um, secondly, he also admitted that, look, it may – it may go in a more moderate direction that the Freedom Caucus isn't totally comfortable with. But at the end of the day, he was confident that it would end up being a better bill. Uh, and, and so at least on the House side, among the hardline conservatives, you're seeing a little willingness to negotiate uh, at least uh, or to be open to what the Senate sends them back. They're already laying the laying the groundwork for that messaging. And it's important to remember that in 2010, when everyone thought the bill mm-hmm that the Democrats put together was totally dead. The House at the end of the day, it was just like the inverse of this. The House was much more liberal than the Senate, and they were brought in line and convinced to vote for this moderate Senate bill just because they wanted to get something passed. You Mm -hmm. could see a sort of similar scenario here. So Jen, you talked about Ted Cruz, very conservative in the Senate, Rob Portman, the Ohio senator, much more moderate, and, and someone who wants to preserve Medicaid expansion. Are we looking at something just like this Meadows and MacArthur deal that got things moving again in the House, are we looking for a similar axis in the Senate? I guess I'm asking, who is positioned to be the kingmaker mm-hmm. in the Senate version of health reform? Well, I think the Senate will be different in that they have a much more narrow um, window, a, a much more narrow margin. You know, 52 senators, you need 50, assuming Mike Pence would break the tie. So you're. I think... If you have to keep almost everyone on board, everyone's assuming Susan Collins, the most moderate Republican, doesn't want to defund Planned Parenthood, doesn't want to repeal Medicaid expansion. It's kind of a lost vote. It would be very, very hard to get her. So you really can only lose one other person. Rand Paul, I think, is the front runner for that slot because not, he not has Lisa it. Murkowski. It could be Lisa Murkowski too. And we're already at those three, and you've lost the bill. Um, so. It's not going to be the same way that the House got, you know, so far left, so far right. It's they they need to keep it more tightly aligned. But to your point about Kingmaker, I think Lamar Alexander is going to be the the front runner here. Um, he's been very out front already with all the research he's done. He chairs one of the committees, um, and and al- at least the moderate Republicans really trust him. The conservative Republicans, you know, disagree with him probably on a lot of these policy points, but. Um, they know that he's going to be running the show. And and two more thoughts about Alexander. First, this is a guy who's been in the national spotlight for decades. He ran for president, as he would say, one and a half times. He is someone who is not going to be intimidated by pressure from the White House. I think the second issue is that Alexander is very deep on health care in a way that some of the health care folks in the House, frankly, just weren't a lot of turnover among the leadership there. We alluded to Upton not being on the Energy and Commerce Committee. Walden was just his first big gig. Not that he didn't have some healthcare experience, but Alexander has crafted major healthcare bills before. So the issues that might keep wayward senators from voting for this, you mentioned Jen Rand Paul, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins. I guess we could quickly run through this. Uh, Susan Collins, very concerned about Planned Parenthood cuts mm-hmm. in the bill. Lisa Murkowski, also Planned Parenthood, Rand Paul, who knows where, where to begin with Rand Paul. Who, so the, the the issues that senators are going to be trading off on, what what might those be? I think the biggest two, and uh, our colleague Burgess Everett on the uh, great reporter on the Senate team, and I did a story um, yesterday on, I think the two main issues are going to be pre-existing conditions and Medicaid expansion. Pre-existing because they saw what happened in the House and they saw how contentious that issue is and folks really want to ensure that those uh, protections are still there. Medicaid um, is is dicey because there's a lot of Republicans who have expanded Medicaid or their states expanded Medicaid and they don't want to undo that. I think it's going to be interesting to see how they unroll Medicaid expansion I think, if anything, they might do it more slowly than the House did. Maybe they don't do it at all. Um, I mean, Rob Portman and Dean Heller put out statements yesterday saying— Dean Heller, the vulnerable Nevada senator, who's up for re-election. The only vulnerable Senate Republican this year, perhaps, or at least the most. Um, Jeff Flake is another one in Arizona. Yeah. but, but but Heller's top of the list. I mean, his state, Nevada, expanded Medicaid, and, and he doesn't want to see it go away. Um, so I think I think those two are going to be the top of the line and probably like 
the hairiest issues for the Senate. I agree on on the Medicaid uh, part in particular. I mean, one of the difficulties is that is that this idea of totally overhauling Medicaid, of, of not just rolling back the expansion, but also restructuring the way that it's financed, putting it essentially on a budget uh, for the first time. Uh, those are an issue that's been totally underplayed here. Absolutely, that's it's been it's been lost, especially in the past week. Um, but that is one of the fundamental parts of the bill. And you have a number of senators, I'd argue too many senators at this point, who have a, a major issue with a fundamental part of the bill. Um, and, and that seems that seems like something that needs to be resolved uh, in, in the early part here so that they can gun build, you know, rebuild the legislation around it. I mean, going back to your point about the industry players and hospitals specifically, the Medicaid cuts as much as anything are going to impact hospitals at the end of the day. I was talking to one one strategist who said that his hospital was projecting two or three percent profit margin before the Republican bill, and after they'd be running a ten percent deficit, like an enormous swing mm. because of all the cuts to not just funding but the rise in uncompensated care. So hospitals are especially worried here. I I want to close with just one final thought about the House process, and both of you were at the Capitol and have reported and tracked closely. If you think about the moment that stands out to you from this multiple-month sprint, I guess multiple-month sprint almost feels a little oxymoronic, but man, it <laughs> a was very frenetic. fast marathon. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of stopped and started, and, and there were so many rushed attempts at, at votes or, or not. What were the signature moments or moment that you will remember as a reporter from the past couple months? I'll, uh, I'll I'll pick out one right at the end, and uh, it, it was I was watching the vote from the the, the press gallery up on the right above the floor, um, and and the Republican whips looked very relaxed throughout the entire vote. Um, they seemed like they had it right up until the end. You got close to that two sixteen mark, and and people started to kind of mill about. And I'm not sure exactly what happened, um, but they hit two hundred sixteen. Uh, and then you saw the one of the, the deputy whips, um, Patrick McHenry, McHenry, come come running down and pointing like he had one more vote. Um, clearly, they didn't want a Republican to take the deciding vote mm-hmm. on this. Uh, and he, who has maybe done perhaps the most of anyone to try and get everybody in line over the past week, uh, secured that 217th vote. Um, and that's something that I'll remember him running down uh, the aisle signaling that that they had that last vote. And then afterward, when the Democrats started singing uh, goodbye. Who could forget that? <laughs> so I, I went to a presser right after with Pelosi, who was asked directly, what what was behind that? Was that planned? And she said, no, no. And they all said together on the stage, no, it was spontaneous. And the fact that they were all in line that it was spontaneous made me wonder how spontaneous it actually was. But it's been interesting to see the Democrats get attacked for that song from people yeah. who say they were well, too Well, it goes focused. back to 1994 when um, a Pennsylvania congresswoman, Marjorie Margolis, took a really tough boat for President Clinton, and she did ultimately lose her seat, but everyone sang that song to her that goodbye. So there, this has been recycled before. I, I have to be honest. Not only did I not know that, I think the media coverage overall has missed that. Actually, I didn't know it either until someone told me yesterday. Oh. I thought it was I thought it was very witty at the time, but apparently it's not that you, witty. You weren't reporting on the 1994 bill, Jen. No. It seems like you, you've kind of covered it all. Um, um, that must mean I'm really old. Thanks, Dan. No, no, no. <laughs> it just speaks to, despite your amazing, amazing pr- prodigiousness, you, you, are, you are so young, but it feels like you've got the wealth of, of knowledge here. So your signature moment from the past couple of weeks. Um, I will remember that moment of them singing, but also, hmm. I think this frenetic week was pretty remarkable because I I did think on Monday this was going to go down in flames again and when it became clear that it was that it was coming back was really enlightening because as as much as I was confident that they would eventually repeal this bill I did not think that it was going to come together that fast post pulling the bill the first time. I I think my most memorable moment and, and there were a few from reporting on the ground but watching Donald Trump say that healthcare was complicated and, mm. and nobody knew, not only is that going to stick with me from this healthcare debate, it just it, it felt like a summation of his grasp on what the presidency actually entailed versus campaigning. And I think that line is going to hang around Trump for as long as he is president, because it was just such a amazing political moment to have the leader of the free world say, "I essentially I didn't know what I was signing up for." Yeah. 
And do you still have that bruise on your forehead from hitting your head on your desk? I, I <laughs> it's only gotten bigger this year. <laughs> well, and, and, and maybe I should rush quickly to get that treated because it, it might not be covered in, in the months ahead. Adam, Jen, thank you for joining. I'm sure there will be many, many twists and turns lying ahead in the Senate. You'll have to come back and talk about those too. It was thank fun. You. Thanks. Absolutely. Hey, it's Dan Diamond. And if you're listening to Pulse Check and you like podcasts, we definitely want to hear from you to learn about your habits and what we can be doing better. You can go to politico.com slash podcast survey. There's a two-minute Q&A where we can get a little bit more information about what you like about our podcast, how you're listening, and where we can go moving forward. Again, politico.com slash podcast survey. Again, that's politico.com slash podcast survey. Podcast survey is one word. When thinking about the health insurance executives who were willing to talk about Obamacare and how it was affecting the industry in positive ways, there was one name always at the top of the list, Dr. Mario Molina, head of Molina Healthcare, California-based insurer. Now, Mario Molina is no longer head of Molina Healthcare. He was let go this week along with his brother, John, Striking for a few reasons. One, his last name is Molina. His father founded the company. Mario joined us from California on a call to talk about why he departed from the company, not willingly, and what he thinks of Republicans' efforts to change the healthcare system. You're no longer with Molina Healthcare. You obviously have a very strong opinion on the Affordable Care Act. How do you feel after the Republican health bill made it through the House yesterday? Well, ironically, um, I'm a little surprised, not that it passed, but that it took them three tries really to get this thing across the line. Uh, They've tried to bring this bill home and failed um, to get the votes until yesterday. And I would have thought it would have passed on the first round. What's the most concerning piece of that bill in your mind? Well, it's hard to say what's the most concerning piece. I think the first thing that concerns me is the last time it was scored by the CBO, about 25 million Americans were going to lose their insurance coverage. It hasn't been rescored, but the bill hasn't gotten any better. So I can't imagine that that number will have changed. Um, The other thing that's really alarming is the Republicans going back on their promise to protect people with pre-existing conditions. This bill would give more flexibility and allow people with pre-existing conditions to be um, discriminated against uh, if states offered a high-risk pool. The problem we've seen in the, the past with high-risk pools is that they don't work. And this is not a new idea. This has been tried over and over again and failed consistently. So a lot of Americans are going to be at risk. I, I just want to pivot now. You, you were CEO of Molina Healthcare. It's the company that your father founded 40 years ago. You were CEO for more than 20 years. You are no longer with them as of this week. And you spoke with Politico's Paul Demko a bit about why that may or may not have happened. I, I just want to get it for our listeners. Why are you no longer at this insurer that I just saw the financial reports? It looks like things have been going quite well. Well, the official word is that it was poor financial performance and a need to change management. Uh, my brother, John, who's the CFO, and I were removed. Uh, I was removed as the chairman and removed as the CEO. He was removed as, as the CFO. Um, we are both currently on the board, and I'm standing for re-election at the moment. Uh, and as you know, the financial performance has not been that bad, and it's actually improving And much of the financial issues that we suffered in the fourth quarter were really around two issues. One was the risk transfer on the ACA. The actuaries had miscalculated the amount that we needed to reserve. Uh, And so it really wasn't performance so much. It was because we were actually doing too well and had to pay too much money back to the government. The second one was that someone in the California health plan missed a contract change. It was a blunder. It was an accounting blunder, but it was a blunder. Um, So it doesn't really reflect the underlying performance of the operations of the company. It's a mystery. Um, People have suggested that maybe it had something to do with my outspoken criticism 
of the Republican plans to repeal and replace the ACA. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, you, you said the official word, and now you've kind of hinted at some of the other reasons. What what reason could there be beyond either the company performance or your outspoken advocacy? It was a surprising move, to say the least, to see you gone. Well, it's a mystery. It was a complete surprise to me. And uh, the family still owns 25% of the company. I remain on the board. Uh, we're loyal to the company, its mission, and the employees. And we want to see that continue. But I, I am worried. Do you regret speaking out at all about the Republican health bill? No, I'm, I'm sorry the board took the action they chose to take, but I think I did the right thing. And I think it's important. You know, when you see something and you have the knowledge and experience that other people don't have, you need to speak up. And this is for the overall good of the country. Well, if you lose your job for speaking up and Republicans still pass their, their bill, was it worth it? Well, I think you have to, you have to live with your own conscience. And in the end, to have, you know, abandoned millions of Americans who potentially could lose their insurance uh, for personal greed, I think would have been a mistake. Well, Dr. Molina, you are someone who hasn't been afraid to talk to the press about either the Affordable Care Act or, or the Republican bill. That is not always the case with health insurance executives. I'm curious in your mind. Who is the most courageous executive still leading a health insurance company right now? I'm really not sure. <laughs> so no, no one comes to mind at all? Well, uh, no one has really spoken up. I saw uh, that the CEO of Blue Shield of California finally said something, but you know, it was at the 11th hour. The, the CEOs of health plans, whether they're public or private or the Blue Cross or Blue Shield plans, um, have been very quiet. And it's very frustrating. If you think about the criticisms of the Affordable Care Act, such as, such as they are, that some of the plans are too expensive, some of the costs that insurance companies have assumed are, are hard and, and unprofitable, forcing them to pull out of the market. What are the legitimate concerns from your perspective as someone who actually ran one of the insurance companies? Well, I think if you look at who's done it right, I'd have to point to California. And they made a critical decision. And that decision was to eliminate the grandfathered plans. You either had to be in an ACA compliant plan or not. There was no other option. And as a result, they had a much larger, more diverse and more stable risk pool. That, I think, has been the single biggest problem that has weakened the marketplace plans across the country. Had other states followed California's lead, uh, I don't think we would have had the issues about unaffordable plans. California's working quite well. That's, that's an argument I've heard from covered California administrators as well as folks, just advocates around the state, that because California embraced implementing the law and made it that much easier to get the gains from it that other states that have been laggards haven't seen. I think, I think that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the idea of insurance is to have a large risk pool with everyone in it and everyone covered, and then spreading the risk for the cost of care across many, many people. That's why California's uh, marketplace product has been so successful, and I think that's why other states are having difficulties. You talked a fair amount with HHS and CMS during the Obama administration. I, I remember Andy Slavitt, and others suggesting that media should talk to you. Clearly, there was a lot of communication there. How much did you talk with Tom Price and Seema Verma before? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> well, that's the answer. You know, actually, I, I, um, I participated in a number of meetings with other industry leaders at the White House and uh, at HHS. I met once with Dr. Price. We talked to him about some of our issues. He listened sympathetically. Uh, there was a meeting, again, of industry leaders with Seema Verma. But on the issue of the marketplace, she really had nothing to offer. I think the issues around marketplace were out of her hands. She didn't have the ability to 
or the authority to continue the funding and, and paying of the uh, cost sharing reductions and basically told us that was going to be up to Congress and the White House. So um, while it was a cordial meeting, not much came out of it. I'm just curious about that Seema Verma meeting. She's the head of CMS, but as has been widely reported, including by us, her expertise is on Medicaid, not necessarily on private insurance and, and marketplace expansion. When you say that she didn't have much to offer, did, did she not have much to offer in the way of talking about private plans and, and coverage, or was it just more the lack of authority around what she could promise the industry? I think it's really the fact that she didn't have the authority. You know, um, the issue about the CSRs, which was the hot topic at the time, the Obamacare still subsidies, an issue, yes. yeah, uh, was out of her hands. And she told us that we need to go talk to Congress uh, about an appropriation or we needed to talk to the president, that it wasn't something that she had the, the authority to do. On the other hand, I think that the marketplace is a little bit like the tail uh, wagging the dog. There are 72 million Americans who are covered through Medicaid. It is the largest health program in the country, even bigger than Medicare, in terms of the number of people that it covers. And yet it gets very little discussion, and it frankly is far more at risk than even the marketplace. What was the mood in the room like when Seema Verma said she couldn't help with the CSRs, the Obamacare subsidies? How, how did the executives take that? Oh, I, I think people were a little bit disappointed, but I don't think anyone was terribly surprised. I think we all went into that meeting knowing that there wasn't much that she could do about that issue. If you're thinking about the undercovered issues in the Affordable Care Act and the exchanges and for insurers, the issues that the media hasn't done a good job of focusing in on, what needs more coverage? What needs more attention? Clearly, the Medicaid issues need more attention. Um, the first issue is that the bill would provide greater state flexibility through per capita grants, where Medicaid uh, recipients, each person would get a, a fixed amount. So the state would get a fixed amount per person. What people don't understand, and clearly in talking to governors, what many governors didn't understand, is that comes at a heavy price. Uh, in the first year that this is, goes into effect, Medicaid spending will be reduced by 18 to 25%. And that's not something that the state budgets can absorb it will have devastating consequences on Medicaid. And as I said, Medicaid covers 72 million people. It's the largest provider of long-term care in the country. Um, many of the people that will be affected are disabled, they're elderly, and about half of Medicaid beneficiaries are children. They have no voice, they have no vote. So that's one of the things that makes Medicaid particularly vulnerable. I, I know that it's been a week of transition, and you're probably still figuring out what, what is next, but clearly you are passionate, you are an advocate when it comes to healthcare issues. Do you have any sense for where you are going to be spending your time in the, in the coming months? Well, I told my board members at the last board meeting that I'm going to continue to speak out and be active on these issues. I'll make it clear that the views are my own. They don't necessarily reflect the policy of the company. But I'm not going to stop, and my removal as CEO is not going to change my attitude or my actions. I believe in this. I think that we had the opportunity to provide coverage for millions of uninsured Americans. We can't let that get away from us. And I want to make sure that everyone understands this is everyone's problem. Um, many people with private insurance believe that it doesn't affect them. That's not true. If people become uninsured then they will seek care from doctors and in hospital emergency rooms, uh, and that care won't be paid for. It'll be uncompensated. As a result, those providers are going to turn to the insurance companies and say, we need to increase our rates to you because we're not getting paid with all these uninsured patients. That, in turn, will increase insurance premiums that are charged to employers. This will have a ripple effect through the whole economy. And that's the thing that I think is, is missing. A lot of people think this is somebody else's problem. It's not. It is a problem for every American. Last question. The insurance industry overall has done 
quite well since the Affordable Care Act took effect. The big five insurers have made something like $25 billion more in, in profit since the, uh, since the law was passed and then the coverage expansions kicked in. Is the insurance industry too profitable overall? Does it need some level of reform? You know, that's a great question. To a certain extent, I look at the insurance industries a little bit like utilities. Um, everyone needs clean water. Everyone needs electricity. And they are regulated. Insurance companies are regulated, too. But um, I wonder sometimes, and I, I think, you know, my ouster uh, is a, a great example of that. How much profit should a health plan make? How much does it need to make? What's appropriate? We felt that... Uh, Profitability of 2% was a reasonable goal. I think our last reported numbers, we were at 1.6% for the first quarter of 2017. Um, apparently, there are board members and uh, shareholders who feel that that is too low. There, there is word this morning that Anthem and Cigna are, are still potentially going to merge. Anthem has filed a a petition with the Supreme Court to get it to review that that blocked merger. Any thought on whether Anthem and Cigna should partner up? Oh, I, I think that's a doomed merger, and I think it's been doomed from the start. I I don't, you know, have personal knowledge of this, but the reports in the media about the um, fact that uh, the CEOs of the two plans couldn't get together, uh, whenever you have that kind of an issue, those things are almost always doomed to failure. I think there's also reasonable concerns about uh, would it create a company that is too big and limits competition. Um, I think those concerns remain. Last, last real question. You said you couldn't think of a courageous health insurance executive who at least is an innovative one to watch or, or at least one that, that maybe you had a good working relationship that you think is someone that we should be following. You know, he's been kind of quiet, but I think Bernard Tyson has a good heart. And he's a smart man and understands the business. I keep an eye on Bernard Tyson over at Kaiser. Okay. Well, we'll watch Bernard. We'll certainly watch your path in these coming weeks and months. Thank you for making time, Doctor. Thank you. That's it for Pulse Check. After a very busy week, we decided to hold this podcast for an extra day or two to see what would happen with Republican vote. But the plan is to be back on our normal Wednesday routine next week. Thanks to Mario Molina for joining us from California, to Jen Habercorn and Adam Cancran for sitting in early on a Friday morning, and Bridget Mulcahy for being the rock star producer who traveled the country and made it back in time to do this podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, TuneIn, anywhere that there is a podcast app. We should be there. And if we're not, let me know at ddiamond.politico.com and let me know who you'd like to hear on Pulse Check. You can find me, ddiamond, on Twitter, too. And we'll be back with a new episode of Pulse Check next week.